Greetings, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Herdmates podcast. Today, I'm so pleased to have Dr. Frederick Leroy join us all the way from Belgium. Um, and it's 10 o'clock there and I'm in the evening, and I'm really, really pleased that he would take time to have a conversation with us here today. So, Frederick, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Peter. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Um, so how about if you just, for people who don't know who Frederick is, maybe just a brief uh, introduction. Uh, assume you're at a, remember when we used to go to these things called parties, um, <laughs> social gatherings, yeah. and you might meet somebody who didn't know yeah. you. So how would you like to introduce yourself to people? The party version or the, no, <laughs> uh, basically, you know, I'm, I have a background in, in, in bioengineering, actually. So I'm a bioengineer, which in Belgium means that you're um, trained in process technology, but you're not looking at electricity or bridges. You're looking at living matter, so at organisms and you know, enzymes and microbes and mm. animals. And you're trying to use that for society somehow. So I'm trained as a bioengineer. Then I did a master's in, on a nutritional topic. And then I moved into a PhD um, where my topic was food microbiology. And I studied uh, fermentation processes uh, and, and more specifically fermentation of meat. Mm. Um, and I applied some mathematical modeling to it. So still very process oriented. And then at some point I started to um, look closer at my case study, which is meat. Uh, because while I was doing my research and which I'm still doing today, I was discovering that meat became something very special and emotional and, mm. um, and that the conversation was changing fast over the years. And mm. I think it's about how long would that be? Maybe eight years ago that it started to accelerate. Mm -hmm. And suddenly meat was a bad thing. And my topic of research suddenly was something bad. <laughs> and I had to figure okay. out why, that's, why is that the case? So I started to, to, to broaden my, my research, basically, uh, going into interdisciplinary research with people from different fields, trying mm -hmm. to understand what was going on with meat and animal foods in general, because I was also working a bit on dairy and on other things as well. And that's how I end up here today, I guess, by, um, because I have found somehow a position in the field that is um, combining different um, perspectives on the topic of animal foods. And um, there are not all that much people in that niche, I would say. People tend to be on, on one, one of the dimensions I'm, and I'm trying to see what goes on if you connect all those lines. Where does that Excellent. end up? So both the societal side of it, the nutritional side, the fact of, you know, that you need livestock to produce that and the sustainability angle, all that comes together and ends up in a certain discourse. And, you know, looking at the discourse has been something very interesting. Hmm. So are you from a, a farm background or...? No, not really. No, I've, I, my, when I was a kid, my grandfather had animals, so, but mostly chickens and you know, nothing really major. 
I was living close to the countryside, so if I went biking, it was in between the cows, but that I didn't grow up on a farm as such. We had our own produce and we had you know, a couple of animals, but nothing really major. So I'm not having a very strong farming background myself, but okay. I did. I grew up in the middle of the countryside. I was actually mm -hmm. born at the coastside, so I had the fishermen from the one side and I had the, the cattle farmer from the other side. Yeah, surf so and turf. Surf and Sorry? turf. Yeah, surf and turf. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so um, in, I think, you, uh, some biographical material that I read um, about you, and you just mentioned it about fermented meat. And I'm not sure that everyone would understand, I mean, fermentation, sauerkraut, fermentation, you know, dill pickles, um, maybe they would understand for yogurt, but what other sorts of fermented animal source foods might we be familiar with or maybe become familiar with? Well, there are all sorts. There, there are a lot of ethnic, ethnic products that we, you know, have weird names and they're produced all over the world. But basically in Europe, they're quite important. Uh, and they uh, are mostly, I would say, things like salami and, and, you know, stuff that you put, meat batter, basically meat and fat that you put in casings and you ripen them. And there's a whole microbial process behind that. And it ends up as pepperoni on your pizza. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's traditionally, it's produced uh, in, you know, according to different recipes and technologies. And there's quite a bit of variation in that. And you, you end up with different microbes and you end up with different techniques and uh, it's it's an interesting ecosystem because mm. there is this microbial dynamic inside lots of things are happening inside and then you you have the thing that you put on the plate and you eat it mm -hmm. um Some, it's a fascinating somebody... ecosystem and i really started out as by, by it was more or less a coincidence that i started to work on meat because i was paid on a european project that was looking at fermented meats in europe at the time when fermented meats were still, and processed meats in general, were still seen as something positive and something, you know, valuable for Europe. So there was money invested in it. So people would explore it and make them better and improve the quality and the safety. And I was paid on that project. And there was another project just running next to that, which was also available. The vacancy was also open and that was for cheese. So I could have ended up in cheese as well, but it, I just happened to end up with the meat part. And then, uh, I stayed in that research for yeah, until now, basically. I'm still working on, on mm. meat fermentations as well. Hmm. So you you have an interesting lab with hams hanging from the ceiling and salamis and... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll be right over. Um, I, I remember somebody making a comment about... Um, wine, cheese, and meat are all some form of controlled spoilage. Um, and that's obviously not quite as delicate or as sophisticated as it ends up being, but um, using these microbes to produce hams, or as you said, salami, other charcuterie, um, as well as the dairy products, those things that would preserve animal source foods and not only preserve them, from what I understand about um, protein nutrition for humans, it can actually demonstrably increase the digestibility of some indispensable amino acids. So 
you could actually take lower cuts of meat and make a salami or some other, um, doesn't have to be fermented, but some kind of processed meat out of it and actually increase its nutritive value. Yeah, yeah. No, but they are, they're actually they're fantastic products. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, this salami. If you think about it, it's, it is so... It's so ancestral as well, you know, it's, it's, mm, it's mm. the meat and the fat and the intestinal casing around it. And mm -hmm. then it has years and years of history, um, it, especially in Europe. It has this also this cultural connotation of, you know, it's produced locally. Every village in Italy has its own. And variety. seasonally. It's strong. Mm. It's a strong, it's a strong symbol. Mm -hmm. for it. And it would be tied to the calendar because you would be slaughtering animals not in the heat of the summer but in the cool of the late fall perhaps so that yeah. because we didn't have refrigeration which is one of the things that fermentation does for us is it preserves meat without ferment without refrigeration but then just the handling of meat etc is better done under cooler conditions so now you've got everybody sort of coming together to do this and so it's more than just the nutritive value. It's more than just the food item itself. As you say, there are all these cultural aspects around it as well. Yes, it's a, and, and that's why it's so interesting to see that it's, that this very ancient food that has played a very substantial role in, in human sustenance, basically, especially in Northern countries, imagine, Places like Iceland, for instance, where you had to ferment things and to just because you know that's the way people were eating. So it has such a, a long tradition as a very valuable food. And now all all those different kind of fermented meats and, and processed meats are all lumped together in the category processed meats. And which is lumped so, so under the category of processed food. Exactly, and then and you know, and you have the, you have the link with red meat as well. So it's red meat and processed meats. That's what you always get. So you have this connotation of processed foods, which basically they mean ultra processed foods, but it's you know it's all put together. And then you have this red meat that is somewhere above it. So and, and then people think about hot dogs and who knows what. And so it's all lumped together in in a basket that is supposed to be harmful for you, mm -hmm. and it's in complete contrast with what it's used to mean. And, and, and it still means in some places and you, you feel the opposition also, you feel now in Europe this tension between different countries also when it comes to nutritional labeling, for instance, or when it comes to the Lancet report. The one country that has stood up and, and made a lot of noise and didn't accept it is Italy um, because they feel attacked in, in you know, the core of their, <laughs> mm -hmm. of their uh, it's, it's their pride basically, it's this thing they're proud of, they're proud of their no, San Daniele hams and their Parma hams and their salami and their and their different cheeses for that matter because those are also targeted. So they, you feel that tension um, between different countries. You know the countries that go along with the narrative and the ones that still have this this traditional core inside them that they want to defend. You know? mm -hmm. and then the, the other interesting question is what is tradition in the first place? You know when is something traditional? When is it not? It's it's a very slippery slope and it's um, it's tied to identities a lot. You know? it's, a, it's a very silly thing, you know, it's the thing that you buy in the supermarket and it's at the basis of such a controversy mm. and it's, 
it creates so much fuss and noise. And basically it's something that is probably the first processed food, right? The first processed food probably has been meat. A first, you know, intervention in, in primary materials has probably been with animal foods, has probably been, you know, drying some strips of meat or leaving them aside. And then, you know, it entered our, our um, food history and way earlier than we were making bread or, or we're making dairy. And so yeah. it goes all the way back. It's coming from, from very distant past and it has been reduced to something that is representing a little tick box in, a, in the food guidelines. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe that's a segue into the sort of ancestral component to this conversation that there's part of, or at least some who would like to suggest that human, ancient humans were somehow more uh, herbivorous, plant-based, um, and others who suggest that it looks like we've been consuming animal source food for a very, as you just said, for a very, very long part of modern homo sapiens existence. Um, and you've written some papers along that, but just how might that informate, well, first of all, agree or disagree, and then how should we look at that when we're listening to some of these narratives about what we ought to be eating. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's amusing that basically we, we, we're trying to define a single diet for a period that has been, what, 99% of our existence on, as, as, a, as a genus or on, on this planet. And we, we're trying to define that as one diet. It must have been very variable, it was, it's an extremely long period. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years. So it's an extremely long period. People, humans have spread all over the planet. Um, I mean, not initially, but you know, with, over long stretches of time, we've stretched all over the planet. So there's been an immense amount of different practices. Um, we don't know anything about that. Uh, of course, we have ideas. We, we can try to, you know, we have we have some residual material that we can try to use to construct some vision on it. We have ideas from hunter-gatherers, but but then again, the hunter-gatherers now are completely different than the hunter-gatherers we had before because, first of all, the megafauna is not there anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's difficult just to to say what the diet was looking like in the first place. So we have some clues. We for sure for sure there were animal foods involved because we know it from our own metabolism today and the anatomy we're having now clearly shows that we have diverged from the more herbivore cousins that we had in, in the frugivores mm -hmm. that you know, were coming, pertaining to the same niche that we, we, we came out of. So they have been tremendously important, but uh, it's, it's a bit, um, and, and one could argue that because indeed our bodies evolved to incorporate those kinds of diets and to be based on those kinds of diets, is, it makes sense to consume them. And, and it meets, it's, they're very robust foods and we can handle them well because we have adapted to them. So it's, it's, a, it's a great match. Um, now that's another thing than going, going to a debate where you would say you will need that percentage of your diet to be this and this and, and this. That's, 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 has, it's, it's, um, 
I think it's it's even a question that doesn't make a lot of sense. We, we are very flexible, we're technological, we have found so many ways of dealing with different kinds of foods. We, we took toxic foods and we made them edible. Yes. Um, what, what is that? What is the fish? Fugo in Japan? Japan Japanese, yeah. And yeah. If, if you don't prepare it right, you die. And it's not yeah. a simple pro. I mean, I'm fascinated by how human beings <laughs> figured that out. And who got to be the testers along the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, well, I, I think that, um, yes, the, the, the single diet philosophy, I think, is uh, ludicrous on its face. I, I think that um, I'm growing weary of the either or conversations that seem to dominate today. Uh, it, it is not a, a question of either animal agriculture or plant agriculture. Globally, they're intimately inter interconnected, um, integrated. And even in more um, industrialized areas like the United States, I assume Europe as well, that integration takes place maybe not on the same farm, but you know, plant source foods are grown, harvested, sent for processing, create some byproducts that enter back into livestock feed. And, and so, but even so, the little things like over half of the world's fertilizer is coming from manure. And so if you take that away, or over half the world's farmers are depending on livestock for draft energy. So take that away. And, and what's the answer? Um, but I also would point to things like the, the persistence of the lactase um, gene in Northern Europeans indicating that at one point there was clearly an advantage to adults being able to consume dairy products. Um, yeah. As you had just mentioned a little while ago that, um, but in other parts of the world that wasn't maintained um, and clearly they survived. And, and so the, the, the question of the right diet very quickly gets beyond raw nutritional conversations and enters into other areas. Mostly I, I, Adele, I think I'm gonna quote her properly, but basically there, we really don't know what to eat to avoid chronic disease. We think we do, but the, the, the confident assertions that come out saying red meat is a, or processed meat first and then red meat to a little lesser extent is a risk for cancer, for example. Um, and, and so it, it's, do you have any thoughts on the, papers that came out in Annals of Internal Medicine a little over a year ago that basically um, were calling out the quality of the evidence that was being used or has been used for dietary guidelines or making these kinds of health pronouncements. Wow. As you know, I've been always very much in favor of an approach that looks at the quality of the evidence. I think we should indeed put the quality of the evidence first and before we make very hard conclusions. Um, so grade is 
doing that job. It's what the most interesting because what came out of the grade study is something that intuitively everybody that has some common sense already knew. I mean, yeah, the quality of the evidence is just not there to say that red meat is bad for you. Um, and but the most interesting part of the whole of the whole series of articles has been the aftermath when people started to you know, the whole interplay with, with the ones that did agree that were accusing them of, of conflicts of interest. Uh, well, even and, before it came out, right? Before it came out, they tried to embark, they tried to boycott, tried to prevent the publication, actually. That's how, that's how, that's how crazy the nutritional uh, academic landscape is at this very moment. People are trying to prevent that something is published because it doesn't fit their vision. It's, it's incredible. So that, that has been the most interesting part to me, just to see how these different, these two fields were coming back together after basically a couple of, of years and, and maybe decades. Um, you see that there were always these two lines of thought. You had, the, on the one hand, you had the people that argued that we need solid evidence before we say anything. And then the other ones that say, well, we, we cannot have the solid evidence we have in you know, controlled studies that we find in the medical sciences. So we have to go with the, with the evidence that we have. But should you go with evidence that is of weak quality to make a hard recommendation? I think you cannot do that. But so those two lines have been there since the very beginning of the dietary guidelines. Basically. And then for some reason, the one <laughs> took over and then after, in 2015, when the IRC report came out, you know, with the World Health Organization on, on red meat and processed meats and colon cancer, at that time, in 2015, Gordon Guyatt, which is the, one of the founding fathers of the great system, he already um, came out with a, an opinion paper. I think it was in New York Times or another, don't remember. So he came out with an opinion piece to say that WHO is doing the public disservice and we shouldn't do this kind of things because it's creating confusion, confusion, and it's not based on solid science. And then things again went uh, in, in, you know, again the, the Harvard style, uh, you know, the Walter Willett style of recommendations took over, and and from then on, since 2015, because I also did a discourse analysis um, of um, messages in in the Daily Mail on on meat and health and, and you could see that things were increasing that things became exaggerated and, and how meat was vilified very rapidly uh, um, over the years in since the beginning of the century so so this narrative was created that red meat was so bad for you and it, it increased and then uh, so a couple of years later now basically now Gordon Guyatt came back with Johnston and the Nutrirex consortium just to make that argument again, but they came with a whole series of articles mm. and they dropped it on the table. And now you have those two camps that just have to confront each other now. Mm -hmm. So, so this, this confrontation is just back on the table. And that's for me, the most interesting part. Yeah, I, um, I, I think it touches upon the, on, on the, the essence basically of, of um, dietary recommendations and what they should be and what they shouldn't be. And, and I think a key part in that, um, when people say, for, first of all, I'd like to point out the difference between animal nutrition and human nutrition and what we can do and what farmers and ranchers do every single day um, versus what um, can be done with, you know, free living human beings, um, completely different 
but there's also the possibility of harm that people were willing to completely disregard in the face of people trying to say, we, we, we think we see there's a trend, you know, they're, they're trying to couch this as they were trained to talk about things. And they were up against people who saw no problem with making confident assertions about no risk and only benefit. And, you know, now it's fair to say, how's that working? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's, it's very bizarre that we even having this conflict in the first place. I mean, it's, it's how can we be so distance from you know the, the th something so obvious as eating right yeah uh, it is mm. this connection is amazing um mm -hmm. we mentioned before you know that the historical past we, we we have this overwhelming variety of diets and dietary solutions for each specific ecosystem we had a different a different method we had um years and, and generations and generations that worked on certain recipes that came to be traditional foods and then they disappeared and others came. So there's an enormous variety. And, and it's at the basis of everything we do. I mean, food is at, the, of, is at the basis of so many things. We focus on the nutrients, but it's so much, I mean, it means so much to humans. And that huge variety is being narrowed down to discussions on a planetary health diet basically that's what we're talking about today one one single diet for the whole planet <laughs> and yes. even though they claim they claim variability but that's nonsense it's it's a it's a monolithic vision of the diet it's the planetary health diet and that's supposed to come in the place of our whole nutritional legacy and our whole culinary legacy and gastronomic legacy and cultural legacy and and even metabolic legacy, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, mm -hmm. all the variability that we have between people. It's all thrown overboard. So we just can have that simple model that we just can introduce in all the schools worldwide, in all the canteens. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the one diet for everybody. It's so so this, this planetary diet that you speak of, um, what broadly, perhaps, what is it? Where is it coming from? Um, what's the evidence to support it? Or and and where can people be learning more about it so that they can become more aware of what's happening? Well, they can always check my Twitter line because <laughs> I talk well, about it. And we'll be sure to <laughs> link to that. <laughs> but um, I, I would say, well, first of all, the planetary health diet is, is the diet that has been proposed by the Eat Lancet Commission, which is a coalition between the medical journal, The Lancet, which is a prestigious journal and you know, has, has a large imp impact. And then you have the Eat Foundation that went together with it. And um, the diet has been mostly designed by Walter Willett from Harvard, who came up with... Uh, the recommendation and that diet now has been um, is being used to um, to transform the food system basically that's one thing because they also call the the, um, the dietary approach they're presenting they call it the great food transformation so they want to transform the food system worldwide food has to become this according to those people. And those people are connected basically to things like the World Economic Forum, they're connected to the United Nations, and, and it's a, there's a big push 
to have that vision on nutrition and health as the predominant vision worldwide, globally, the great food transformation. Mm. That, that's what it is. Mm. Um, and the way it's, it's designed, it's, well, if, if you look at the diet, animal foods are hardly there. The, the, the very minuscule proportions of, of meat can be used, They're absolutely tiny proportions. Uh, eggs, the same thing. You can't even have a lot of fish, even though it's, that's, that's, it's bizarre because normally things like fish are associated physiologically with, with better health. So you would think that they would promote that, but no, also that is stripped down to, um, to small amounts. And then you, you can basically have more sugar, both in calories and in grams than, than any of those animal foods, <laughs> with the exception of dairy. Um, so it is, it is a semi-vegetarian diet. That's what it is. It, it looks a lot like the macrobiotic diet. That's, um, okay. no, it has the same proportion of ingredients almost. So who makes up this eat group? Who makes up the eat, the, you mean the people behind it? Yes. Yeah. So the eat foundation is, um, the founder of EAT is Gunhild Stordalen, which is a Norwegian woman, and she used to be married to a Norwegian billionaire, Peter Stordalen, who gave her the money to play, and then she came up with the EAT Foundation. Um, it's also co-founded by the Wellcome Trusts and by the Stockholm Resilience Center. And in the beginning, people were thinking, and including me, people were thinking that uh, this was basically Stordalen's thing. So she had, she got some money and she wanted to introduce her idea on food and, and she found some people to go along with it. Um, but now, now that if, if you're looking at it now, we see that this thing is not coming from Stordal and Stordal is just the face of it. It's coming from institutions that I like to call the, the, the great architects, the grand architects. They want to have big schemes for the planet. And it's the same people that are pushing this diet uh, the same people that are also pushing other agendas, which have to do with the way uh, we, we dress ourselves and the way cities are built. And, you know, they, they want to have what the World Economic Forum calls now a great reset, mm. uh, which is not a reset at all. It's, a, it's an acceleration of a, of a model that has been under development since several decades. And there's a dietary component, and that dietary component is... Um, is basically what EAT is presenting. Okay. And so one of the justifications for this is their arguably flawed nutritional perspective. The other is what I would suggest is an equally flawed environmental perspective of the benefits of this kind of diet over one containing animal source foods. So before I get completely off the... Um, nutritional side. I think that uh, I've said before that the preponderance of the high quality scientific evidence strongly suggests that the lack of animal source food in the diet is a greater hazard than too much, you know, so, so we can find evidence of too little um, across the globe. It, not just in low and middle income countries where it might be an economic thing, but even in high income countries where people make choices about avoiding animal source food and that resulting in harm to people. Is that something that you would agree with and have anything to say about? 
Yes, well, as I said before, it looks a lot like a macrobiotic diet. Uh, it, it promotes the same things and it discourages the same things. It promotes the whole grains. And it promotes uh, whatever is a plant, uh, a plant thing, except some, like for instance, potatoes are discouraged in both for some bizarre reason. Uh, now in the macrobiotic diet, it has to do with the yin and the yang and it has a spiritual connotation, but it's also by coincidence probably reflected in, in, the, in the heat diet. And then at the same time, they discourage red meat, especially, um, and, and things like eggs, uh, so they look very much alike. If you, if you look at the macrobiotic plate and you look at the Eat Lancet plate, it's very much interchangeable. And, but we know from the macrobiotic um, wave that we had in the 70s, 80s, uh, well, a couple of decades ago, there have been some studies in the Netherlands where they were looking at macrobiotic groups and especially children, and they were seeing lots of deficiencies being developed. And, you know, they had all kinds of issues with with uh, essential nutrition not being met uh, to, to, to a sufficient degree. So these diets are just simply less robust, you know, and, and if, if you take away the, those foods that we, so we know that even within the Western population today, there are some, some key deficiencies. You know, there's some key deficiencies in vitamins and minerals, not to mention protein as well. You know, we take protein for granted, but <laughs> we shouldn't. Um, and it, so, I mean, we also know that animal foods have mostly, they're mostly rich in those nutrients that are the key nutrients that are now missing. So, 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 and they're very bioavailable in animal foods. So if you, if you take those out of the equation and already having deficiency, you take those, the most robust sources out of the equation, well, you will have to compensate with all the other things and that's not gonna be an easy job. Now, for mm -hmm. some people it may work, but they will have to think carefully of, about how they design their meal. They'll have to supplement, maybe they will have to, mm -hmm figure out how to do that. Not everybody will do that very well, especially if it's a vulnerable population. If mm -hmm. we're talking about young children, if we're talking about uh, young women, mm -hmm. elderly, mm -hmm. it's, not a straight, it's not a straightforward thing to do, just to meet your level of adequate essential nutrition while taking out those sources that probably are the best sources of, of that same nutrition. Yeah, I, I was speaking recently with a researcher who said that an eight-year-old boy, um, he was citing someone in um, growing up in India, for example, trying to, could not eat enough on an ad libitum diet of rice and lentils, just physically could not eat enough to meet his protein requirements, his, his, his indispensable amino acid requirements. I need to train myself to get away from just talking about protein because um, it's a pretty, it's one that we, as you were saying just a little bit ago, we, we, we don't really know how to talk about that properly in human nutrition by and large. Um, so- so, sorry to interrupt you, but there's something interesting also that I have noticed is that that we use protein as a label for food nowadays. Now, if, whenever we talk about changing the food system, we talk about protein. If we talk about animal source foods, we call them animal protein. If it's yeah. you know, plants, we call them we talk, if beans and stuff, we call them plant proteins, as if protein is the thing that covers everything. And if and, and as if it were interchangeable, if you could yes. just swip, swap them around because they're all they're all under the title of protein. So in principle, you can just, you know, exchange it. You can swap your meat for your beans and your cover. 
Yes. That's well, the my plate, the the my plate, the last graphic for the last edition of the dietary guidelines. That's how they label. It was protein, right? As if you know, you put a scoop of protein on your plate, and then you you know make sure you get all your vegetables and fruit, and you're good. Uh, um, the little bit of of looking into it that I've been doing um, from a forage agronomist's point of view, we're quite familiar with how variable the, if you will, nutritive value of hay can be from mm -hmm. cutting to cutting, field to field, all kinds of things can change. Um, and, and I realized recently that, well, that's true for virtually all plant source foods, that those nutritive values can vary quite a bit based on environment management, you know, soil nutrition, varieties of plants, all those things. Um, and yet we go by table values, we go by labels, and those are average values. And so I looked up a, a, a group of soybeans. The, the t it, it's a collection, almost 6,000 samples of soybeans. Now the average is about 39%, but it can vary plus or minus, I don't know, it goes as low as 29%. Um, and, and individual amino acids, it's even greater variability. And then when we process those substances, we reduce the digestibility of some of those amino acids. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, we don't typically do that when we process animal source foods. In some cases, we actually increase their digestibility. So they're very different things. And like you say, we, you know, we, there are industries that are deal that they call themselves protein industries. And, and so you find people who are poultry processors, meat processors, and they're getting into the vegetable protein or vegetal protein, um, you know, substances, and they're, they're just calling it all protein, but we don't eat just protein. It's not all yeah. equivalent. And, and the and more we can insist on the language changing, the better, I think. And it's so disrespectful to, to food and to people make, that are making food and people that are preparing the food to reduce their activities to basically delivering protein as if it were an input that a fuel that is like you put, you know, it's an engine and you put in the, you put in the fuel. That's, that's how it's presented basically. So it's, it's so disrespectful of, of something that we should put back at the, the heart of our society. You know, that's this, you, know, you should, you should rebuild a healthy relationship, I think with, with food and the way we deal with food. And it's not going to help if you're going to call it protein. Yeah. That, that's as reductionist as you can get. Uh, if it's not protein, it's kilocals. Right? They talk about calories. It's all about yeah. calories and protein. Yeah, and, and exactly. Um, I could go off and get up on my soapbox about talk, you know, talking about protein in the diet in terms of calories, which is a completely <laughs> flawed way to deal with it. But um, so we've... There are some topics around, um, uh, you, so you mentioned that some of the players within this are not necessarily the faces associated with the EAT Foundation, um, but um, 
And you mentioned UN, but the Food and Agriculture Organization is also part of, F of UN. And there's been some pushback, certainly by some people who are working in the livestock-related um, uh, departments of FAO and trying to push back. Are there, are there some people that you would uh, want people to be aware of, to maybe look up online and read some of what they're trying to, to document and put out? Yes. Um, well, if I mentioned before United Nations, it means, of course, certain fractions within the United Nations. It's a specific fraction within the, well, there, there are a couple of fractions within the United Nations that are very virulent and very focused on that um, great transition that they want to have. They want, you know, it's central, it's, it's global, and at the same time, it's uniform. Um, and some fractions of the United Nations are supporting that. On the other hand, you have other people within the United Nations are doing a terrific job. You have the World Food Programme, you have the FAO uh, people that, is, there's, some, there's some great people there as well. Um, a while ago, we organized a conference in Brussels and we invited Anne Motte, for instance, from the FAO. Uh, people can find her lecture on, on, on our YouTube channel. Uh, I can provide you with the link so people may, can maybe Yes, please. And, and, she, and she, what they do is that, so they really show how livestock is a, um, a, a hugely important part of um, daily lives in, in low and middle income countries and how that is absolutely vital to those people to have livestock and how it, and how it assists in so many things. So it goes so far beyond nutrition for those people. It, mm. It's... It's about their livelihoods. It even is about, uh, you know, gender uh, empowerment. So it, it, it's, it's sometimes the only um, resource that women have at their disposition. So it helps them, you know, to, to build up um, uh, respect and, 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 you know, to, to, to thrive within their communities. It provides them with attraction, the with the manure for their croppings. It's, it's, it's at the very basis of their societies. It is what it used to be for us as well. It's just that we forgot about it. Um, so, Anne Botek has a great talk about this. And, and, uh, and there are many people like her still that are, you know, on the field, basically, because those people are on the field. That's, so, that's the difference. It's not only within the United Nations. You have that problem everywhere within organizations and with, especially within the large ones, you have people that have their feet on, you know, on the ground and they just are in touch with reality and you have the ones that are designing things <laughs> and want to implement them top down. And that's yeah. where you run into the problems. Well, uh, I've been impressed learning about things like how a quarter of children under five globally are suffering from stunting due to a lack of essential nutrition. And that has been stated to be due to a, a lack of animal source food in their diet. Um, or at least you could say increasing the animal source food in their diet would eliminate that, those essential nutrient deficiencies. And you've got a third of women of childbearing age globally being anemic. And, and these are scandals. These, these are things that can be addressed and should be. And yet we have people who are entertaining these notions that seem to be just not founded in any objective evidence. So 
Um, what uh, I, I guess the, the the critical thing for me is for people to know about that. But I've been thinking that the more we can get individuals aware of the impacts that they can have in their own lives, then the more that news spreads, right? That um, I, I think that um, there's, well, what we've got still 800 million people in the world today that are calorically malnourished or undernourished. Um, and yet at the same time, we've got 2.2 billion who are overweight or obese. And there's, there's one school of thought that says, well, that's the result of them eating Western foods. And of course they run immediately to the hamburger, never thinking about the French fries, the carbonated sugar water, you know, any of the other stuff. Um, but I, think that the more people can understand that malnutrition can manifest itself as obesity, as diabetes, as these other metabolic disorders, and looking globally, the, the non-infectious diseases are, are the biggest killers today. It's, it's as a category, and even individual ones within that broader category are, are far more lethal to humanity today than infectious diseases. And uh, I became recently aware of how policy seems to have separated those two categories. So they, they try to address each one separately as if there's no interaction between metabolic ill health and being susceptible to infectious disease or any of the other things that might play into the conditions on the ground. So are there, are there people that you make it a point to, to follow and read and, and keep current with what they're doing to inform yourself or to, to be aware of what's going on? Uh, there are so many people that I would feel bad singling them out yeah, that are fair. active in, in, in the field. But um, what I, I'm, I'm, I'm rather interested, I, I think, in people that are um, trying to build things up from the ground, like grassroots and try out of the mainstream and that are trying to, to work through community initiatives. And you find those people... Uh, you'll find them in, for instance, in the regenerative agricultural space, for instance. Um, the interesting part about regenerative agriculture, regardless of the things it's doing or not doing, um, so that, that's a whole debate on itself, but I found it extremely interesting because you see that it's constructing communities. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely essential. And you'll find the same thing if it's about metabolic health you find people that are building communities based around a certain idea. It's not about regenerating the soil as the agriculturalists are doing, but it's about regenerating the body. So you have movements and you have leading figures in those movements and you, know, you could mention names, but mm -hmm. um, that are trying to, you know, come up with this regenerative idea of, of you know, fixing whatever has been broken here. Um, mm -hmm. And, and especially, the crucial part of it, I think, is the fact that it mobilizes communities. 
And that's the only, the only hope we have uh, of changing the state of affairs as we're seeing it now. We cannot change it as Eat Lancet is trying to do it, you know, bottom up with one single model. That's never going to work. Mm. The only way can, we can fix it, it's, it's grassroots, it's bottom up. And, mm -hmm. and I think what has to be done is that we have to give momentum to those communities. And some will fail, some will do well. And in the end, you know, the ones that do best will eventually you know, create uh, progress. Mm. And we should give those opportunities by, by, by letting them work. And you can have different, different dietary visions on how to fix metabolic health. Right, you have mm -hmm. the low carb movement that's doing its thing. You have other ones as well, and 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 you feel that it works. You feel so much that it works. Also, if you if you go to social media like Twitter, you feel how those communities are there. And sometimes it goes in the wrong direction because we get these tribal ideas. But on the other hand, it brings people together as well, and it works. I think because it it makes people reflect on what they're doing. It makes them look down again instead of you know to some billboard sign mm. because they're looking at their own body. If, if you're, if you're in, if you have metabolic uh, issues and, and you have problems with insulin responses and so on, and you start measuring, you start watching your parameter, you start measuring what's happening in your body. You start understanding how your body is working and reacting and you get back in touch with that body, which before was something you neglected. And from the moment you're doing that, you open up your mind, you, and, and you start thinking about food and you start thinking about, what you're putting in your mouth that is not just the thing that unconsciously you're just, you know, watching TV, you put things in. You start thinking about what you're putting inside you. You start thinking where it's coming from. Um, the same with the soil. If, if you've, been a, you've been a conventional farmer, you open up to ag agroecological principles. That may be good in itself, but it's also a way of understanding that you're working with soil again, rather than do it, doing it mechanically and just, you know, on automatic pilot. I think it's the thinking process that is, is, of, is of importance and that you're trying to talk about it with other people. So for when you start thinking, you start to communicate and get new information, exchange information, and you build your community. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the only way to basically, you know, do something about it. So if, I, if I would have to put, you know, uh, priorities here, I would say the priorities are there and people doing this, is supporting these kind of initiatives. And there are different entries into that option. Yeah, I, I, it is my belief that a lot of this starts with personal experience. Something happens to make us aware. And then we hopefully will follow that prompting and wherever we're placed, whatever we're trained to do or inclined to do, we then follow it. Um, one of my um, uh, inducements is to say that when you improve your health, you are improving the world because we have no idea where that's going to end, but it's a great place to start. Um, and so are there, are, in, in your work, you're involved with a couple journals. Um, are they f open access things that the general people could read or is it more aimed for people who are more specialized? Of my own production, you mean? Or, yes, or, yes. Um, well, 
we have this paper in front, Frontiers uh, together with Adele Hyde and Pablo Vigorini uh, from New Zealand, um, which is open access and talks about changes in the food system, basically. It talks about changes in the food system and it, it also mentions a bit this top-down versus bottom-up kind of philosophy. Uh, it talks about animal source foods. It talks about why we are scapegoating them. Um, it talks about their special unique position within societies. So I think that's maybe a good paper to get an idea of what's going on in my head. <laughs> okay, um, fair enough. So maybe that, that, that would be one to, to recommend. Um, and we have, have there's another paper which uh, which is open access that, uh, that was co-authored with Adele Hyde and um, it talks about this binary between plants and animals for instance where's that coming from why do why are we even having that why why should we separate them in the first place as you mentioned before those things should be integrated but we have we have introduced this this division between animals and plants so why is that um, that, that's that's a historical thing that comes from you know so it's a western urban kind of construct that has been going on since a while well i um recently had the chance to address a an undergraduate class in forages and i realized that there are these markers that people have put down for where we need to be by 2050 uh, globally yeah. And um, I realized that's 30 years. <laughs> and I realized that for an undergraduate, that's still their professional lives. And so when people talk about increasing food production, meeting the increased demand for animal source, they say protein. Um, when they talk about when we're aware of the loss of cropland, uh, annually due to a number of reasons when they talk about um, the, the population reaching, I think it's upwards of 75% urban by that time. So that continued migration of people from subsistence agriculture into urban landscapes. Um, all of that, I say, speaks to opportunities for people to work in my particular interest, which is ruminant animal agriculture, um, which obviously is a, I would argue, integral part of sustainable food systems. Um, so you are a teacher, you are teaching undergraduates or graduates, or what's the system in Europe? Is it comparable to North America? Well, we call them bachelors and masters. So you have three okay. years of bachelors and then you have two years of masters uh, within the bioengineers. Um, and I teach both in bachelor and master, uh, bachelor and master level. Remotely. <laughs> Remo at the moment, remotely, yes. Yes. Well, um, we've been talking for almost an hour and I'm very appreciative of your time and what you've contributed. Um, we'll make sure that your Twitter and any other links that you would like, but why don't you just, uh, I'll put those links in descriptions, but why don't you just go ahead and say some of those now so people listening don't have to look on a computer to find them. 
Oh, well, I think mostly my Twitter link as uh, people can look up my Google Scholar profile, but it's going to be a mixture between very technical papers and, and uh, a couple of others. But uh, mostly my Twitter account, which is Fleroy, F-L-E-R, uh, sorry, F-L-E-R-O-Y 1974, which gives away my age. <laughs> um, and that's my handle, basically. And most is most is there, so I'm quite active, um, and that I think is my my biggest source of information at the moment. I try to be uh, broad in what I'm offering as well on Twitter, mm -hmm. and um, I talk about nutrition and sustainability, and talk about food studies and mostly food though. <laughs> yes. I try to keep out of politics, and well, even though of course things like the Great Reset are quite political. Yes, that's that's the tricky bit. Um, um, and unfortunately, there are some things that we just can't avoid the controversy on if we're going to talk about yes. them in this space, but that's okay. Um, we can disagree without being disagreeable, I hope, is, is a goal of mine that sometimes I think I manage to achieve. So um, again, Frederick, thank you very much. I always enjoy our conversations. I also am following your papers and uh, some of your projects. Um, I did a, a Google search and it turned up several um, videos on YouTube in addition to the um, conference that you mentioned a little while ago. That was what, just last, um, it was spring of 19, June, is that right? It was, yes, June. Yeah. June, June. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but people can also make, I can also refer people to, to our YouTube channel, which is um, it's Bamst B A M S T, and you'll find the conference there. So you'll find Anne Motet, you'll find uh, people like Fred Mitchell speaking, uh, plenty of interesting talks. Andrew Menti is there from the uh, talking about the pure studies. So there's a lot of information there. I also have other videos uh, available talking about, you know ruminants and agriculture and nutrition so it's uh, any about salami not, i don't think so no oh man <laughs> <laughs> well so it's 11 o'clock where you are thank you again um wish you and yours uh, good health and look forward to the next time that we can speak thank you so much peter uh, see you soon somehow <laughs>